Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It is Friday, June the 28th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Last week, we took a trip down to the Body and Soul Festival at Ballinlock Castle in County Westmeath. The Irish Times stage in the middle of the woods there included discussions and interviews and live podcasts, including one from my colleagues at the Irish Times Women's Podcast. We thought we would take a look at a subject which has been more prominent in the news recently, which is how likely and how desirable is a united Ireland? Is it becoming a more realistic proposition? And what might happen? to happen for it to come about. We assembled a panel including the Sinn Féin president Mary Lou Macdonald, unionist writer Sophie Long and my Irish Times colleague Simon Carswell. And this is what happened. Hello and you're very welcome to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast live from Body and Soul. We are here today to discuss possibly the most important subject facing this country today. It's a subject which has come more on the agenda in the last few months and certainly in the last couple of years, not least because of the sheer shitstorm, which you and I know as Brexit, uh, also because of the strange things that are happening in politics across the water, the implications for the border, which had come to almost not exist because of the good work of many people over the last 20 years, but which threatens to loom up again and threatens our way of life on both sides of, of that border. So we wanted to discuss that with some people who had different perspectives on it. I want to introduce those, those people first. Sophie Long, is uh, she's a unionist, but she's also a progressive and she's also a feminist. Uh, Sophie, that's not a combination that we hear a lot about in the media these days. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, that's probably fair. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that later. We'll definitely talk about that in a little while. I'm delighted to welcome, give a big hand to Mary Lou Macdonald, the president of Sinn Féin. And it's great that Mary is here, particularly because I think it's fair to say, Mary, that, that uh, there are many parties on this island that claim some level of aspiration to Irish unity, particularly in the Republic. But I think Sinn Féin is obviously the party that is most committed to it. And in a practical sense, it's been top of the political agenda for the party over the last two years. And you're pushing for a border poll. Is it fair to say as soon as possible? Well, um, certainly the whole Brexit shitstorm, as you called it, uh, has meant that the issue of the border and partition is now an issue not just for Sinn Féin, but for lots of people who, who maybe never would have given a whole lot of thought to Irish unity or a nation once again. Or, and it's done something else as well. It's broadened the question because it's not now just about orange or green, Irish or British. It's now about Europe as well. European are not connected or isolated. So lots of interesting things have happened. Yes, we want a border poll. That's been provided for in the Good Friday Agreement. And we've worked to do to make sure that when we have the border poll, that we can maximise consensus and that we can win it. And we can actually open up a whole new chapter uh, for Irish people, for people living on the island north and south. And I'm really delighted to be here with Sophie. Uh, and with Simon and yourself to discuss that. But I think Sophie in particular has very interesting perspectives on identity and belonging and change and progress, some of which we would actually share, 
some politics we'd share, other things we'll differ on. So thanks for inviting me. And we want to dig into and explore a couple of those and uh, some of those things and some of those details. But as you can see, this this panel, if you include me, is is gender balanced. Um, It's uh, 50-50 and making up the numbers here is Simon Carswell. He's not just making up the numbers, he's the Irish Times' main man on Brexit and Brexit, the implications of Brexit for us here in Ireland. You've had to trek along not just the Irish border but other borders to see how they work. You've been travelling north and south and over to the UK. Yeah, I've been kind of looking at the whole issue of borders again because no one expected it to come up quite as it has with Brexit but Brexit has just thrown it all open in terms of how people really stopped using borders. There was borders just disappeared over a period of time whether it's political borders or economic borders, economic when it comes to the European single market and political borders when it comes to north-south issues on the island of Ireland. So it's really brought forward a lot of very difficult conversations that people weren't expecting to have for quite some time. Uh, and it's, it's really reintroduced or resurfaced identity politics, the orange-green issue on the island of Ireland. Uh, and in many ways, the Good Friday Agreement uh, 21 years ago uh, made everything, blurred everything. You know, it allowed, it was this very sophisticated political uh, peace agreement that allowed people flexibility from an identity point of view. And then suddenly uh, this Brexit referendum comes about and it's having to ask very particular questions about, well, well are, what are you actually? Uh, and it's having, it's forcing people to really pick which side of the divide they're on again. And that's very unhelpful in many respects. Sophie, can I ask you about that, that first then? Because... If, as Simon says, and certainly I agree with him, that over the last 20 years, in the wake of the agreement, but not just the agreement, also because of changes in the composition of the way the, the European Union worked and free movement and the way that trade works and, and all those kinds of things, it seemed to become considerably less important which side of the border you lived on, whether you lived in Tyrone or Donegal, what political party you voted for, you could work on one side, shop on the other, vice versa. But, and I suppose there was perhaps a slightly uh, idealistic notion that that process on the nationalist side, that that process would just continue and by some unspoken form of osmosis, we would be, become a united Ireland because the idea of the nation state within a European context wouldn't be a significant thing anymore. But now we've gone into sort of reverse on that. Do you agree with that or do you see it a different way? Um, yeah, so I was born in 86, so the Good Friday Agreement was signed whenever I was 12, so mostly what I have known is being able to travel freely into Donegal or down to Dublin, um, and that's now potentially going to change. I disagree, however, that what the Good Friday Agreement meant was that those issues were settled. They were kind of um, like deprioritized, mm. so there was a big push on like getting investment into Northern Ireland, physically rebuilding the city getting big companies to come here because nobody wanted to come for a while um, and trying to figure out ways of setting up institutions so that you could resolve uh, differences through political discussion. So, and I looked at this a little bit in my PhD. It was all kind of good uh, from 98 till about 2000. And then there were a series of events which meant that unionism lost its faith in the Good Friday Agreement. And what that did was then the two unionist parties who'd backed the agreement most, the UUP and PUP, started to lose um, electoral power. And they were overtaken by the DUP, who never supported the agreement in the first place. Um, So that sense of kind of, um, it's okay to move towards reconciliation, it might be okay to have some form of joint authority, which I just saw 
in the new Northern, Northern Ireland Life and Times survey, um, support for joint authority is, uh, would not like it but could live with it, 21% of Catholics, 39% of Protestants, would happily accept, 57% of Catholics, 18% of Protestants. So you've got just under 60% of Protestants would be fairly happy with joint authority now. So, <clears throat> Are you surprised by that? Um, in some ways, yes, but then there are different categories of like people who identify as Protestant or Unionist, and a lot of them are driven by kind of um, social issues, economic issues, and the constitutional question, I suppose, has been hammered down people's throats for so long, and people have been... Uh, scared and intimidated by some of the bigger unionist parties for so long that it would end up in an apocalypse that it's kind of lost its power. Okay. So I think because we've had um, strands uh, two and three of the Good Friday Agreement have allowed north-south cooperation, east-west cooperation, there's some benefits to it in terms of health and electricity. People have kind of seen that, you know, the Irish state itself is no longer a theocracy. I think I said this to you earlier. Northern Ireland is now the theocracy. And most of us are deeply ashamed to be in that theocracy. We don't want to live in that sort of setting. That's because it's rules on things like reproductive rights, uh, gender orientation, that yeah. Northern Ireland is now one of the most, frankly, one of the most backward places in Europe on those issues. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think this idea that, you know, nearly 6% of Protestants support joint authority is because they've had some uh, experience of cooperation with Ireland and they've seen Ireland itself change. So it's no longer as threatening as it once was. When, when we hear this... Thing about the move towards toward, towards a, a positive vote in terms of unity, uh, Mary Lou. Um, one of the things I do wonder about is, as you said earlier, uh, it has to come as a result of a decision, a determination by the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. We've seen some of the most ignorant Secretaries of State for Northern Ireland in the history of Northern Ireland in recent years, and so ultimately the person who might make this decision, uh, barring uh, no further domestic squabbles, could be Boris Johnson, and the mind boggles as to, as to what that might be as well. But one of the things I find depressing is that when people talk about this, they talk very much about what they call the demographic, demographic change. So in other words, the fact that there are more people from the Catholic community, there are a larger proportion of the population in Northern Ireland now than they were 10 years ago and than they were 20 years ago, and people extrapolate into the very near future and say that people from the Catholic community, nationalist community, will be, uh, will be in the majority. That's a very depressing way to think about winning a political argument, isn't it? Um, in, in a way, would we better, be better off moving away as quickly as possible from that towards the idea of persuading somebody of the merits of an argument rather than outbreeding them? Well, well I think undoubtedly for, for unity to happen, people have to be persuaded north and south. And I think the big uh, persuasive argument taking account of the history of conflict and division and all of that. But per, per, the persuasive argument in the here and now is that we are losing countless opportunities for social, for economic, for political advancement because we live on a partitioned island. I mean, we've two of pretty much everything. On a, on a practical sense, it doesn't... Uh, on a practical level, it doesn't make any sense. And all of those debates are to be had. And then, of course, deeper debates around Irishness, around Britishness, about Britain's involvement and relationship with this uh, island. But just remember this, when you talk about the demographics and how many Catholics and Protestants, I, I'm, I'm instinctively uncomfortable with that line of argument. But remember this, the country was partitioned on that basis. Uh, back in the 1920s, the line was drawn on the basis of a sectarian headcount. And whereas 
we're, we're not going to, we cannot replicate that kind of, uh, that kind of division in society. We shouldn't, we should be doing everything we can to heal that. We also have to observe that partition can be maintained on the basis of 50% plus one, and partition can be ended on the basis of 50% plus one, because that's the democratic test. But we shouldn't just be satisfied with that. I agree with you. I think we need to have, and, and by the way, there are ongoing conversations between people from different backgrounds, different experiences, who see big opportunities now in moving forward progressively together as one unified island. And that's, that's, where, that's where it's at. I personally think, and, and some of you will have heard me say it, I think Leo Varadkar as Taoiseach should be convening a forum now. And I think those conversations have to have some shape. And I think those conversations have to leave room for everyone. I'm the leader of Sinn Féin, but I mean, I'm very clear that Irish unity isn't just a matter for Sinn Féin. It's a matter for everybody sitting here because the demographics are changing, because politics has changed, because the North is, as you put it, a backwater on some basic rights issues that we now take for granted here, because people living in the North are no longer satisfied to tolerate that. And that's not just Catholics or nationalists. That's a much broader group of people. Uh, and I think if, with leadership, I think with generosity, and if we use our creativity and our intelligence, I think we can produce something. We have a chance here that, that not every country gets. We have a chance in some respects to start again, to start afresh, to start anew. And that's the attraction of the Uniting Ireland agenda. So it's not just for, for you know, traditional Sinn Féin people who would know the ins and outs of the 81 hunger strike and the Kesh and all of that, that history that people in the north in... in in West Belfast, as Sophie would know, lived all of that. That's the backdrop to, to where people are coming from. But this is a much broader question now. And I, I sometimes think there's a, a little bit of complacency in what you would call the political establishment or mainstream thinkers in this part of Ireland who kind of dismiss it and say, sure, that's not an issue for us. This is an issue for us because history is unfolding before our eyes. And if Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister, and if Boris decides to crash the bus, well, then we're faced with, with big, big political challenges. Uh, and we're faced with a scenario where partition is, is offensive and unacceptable, in my view, anyhow, but would become completely uh, unmanageable and would bring incredible damage to the stability of the, the, stability of the island. Simon, I... I mean, listening to that, listen to what Mary Lou says, I mean, one of the things about demographics is strike me is the demographics are far from clear. There's a lot of complexity within, underneath the sectarian headcount. There's a lot of complexity about whether people define themselves as Irish only, as Irish and British, as Northern. There seems to be an increase in people defining themselves as Northern Irish. Uh, there, are, there is a growth in the number of people who don't describe themselves as either nationalist or unionist. They prefer to designate themselves in another way. So there's a huge amount of, I suppose, confusion, really, about what people really think in Northern Ireland about these issues. And then you add, as, as Mary Lou says, this bus about to crash into a wall. It looks increasingly possible that there will be a no-deal Brexit in only, only a few months' time. It's, it's potentially quite a combustible mix, it seems to me. It really is. It's very complex. And I think if you 
take the, the, uh, the bus out of the equation for a moment and just look at the hard numbers. I, I, I like Mary Lou, I'm quite uncomfortable with the numbers around whether or not there's a majority support for United Ireland, be it south of the border or north of the border. There's, the figures show that there's an overwhelming majority south of the border for it to happen. It's not so in Northern Ireland. Uh, Irish Times did a poll with Ipsos MRBI in March and it's about a third uh, of people in Northern Ireland would like to have a referendum on Irish unity and if it took place, about a third would actually vote for it. Obviously, the numbers are, are higher for, among Catholics, but they're not huge, actually. Uh, it's in the order of about 58% of Catholics in Northern Ireland would support Irish unity. So, but again, I, I, don't, I think it's a very crude way of looking at it. I totally agree with Mary Lou in that there's a job of persuasion, but also discussion. Um, and the forum is a very important thing, both on an all-island basis, but particularly in Northern Ireland. Um, is it's very complicated and you know the, one of the benefits of the Good Friday Agreement was it allowed people the flexibility to be British or Irish and British and Irish uh, and what's very interesting about Northern Ireland is a majority of people viewed themselves as European and that's been taken from them uh, because of the decision by the UK to leave the European Union and 56% of people in Northern Ireland wanted to stay in the European Union so that's caused that's really upturned things hugely um, I would be very uncomfortable with a 50 plus one uh, border poll. I think if the Brexit referendum has taught us anything, it's caused and created more problems than it's solved. And I think that switch that you hit in a referendum, yes, no, uh, an X in a yes box, an X in a no box, is a very simplistic and emotional response on a day. It can be a protest vote. And it can also be a very dangerous thing. And I'd agree with the, the views of the former SDLP leader, Seamus Mallon, who wrote recently that it needs to be, uh, it can't be on the narrow confines of a vote, of a, of a simple majority. And I think, that's, uh, I think that's a good point to make because, as he said, it needs to be discussed and worked through. Uh, and on my travels on the Brexit story and looking at and talking to people along the border and in Northern Ireland, particularly when you talk to moderate unionists, Yes, they're deeply uncomfortable with the UK leaving the European Union. And yes, it's forcing them to have conversations about whether they would be better off, particularly if there's a no-deal Brexit and the mess that falls out of that. They would absolutely have to consider the possibility of being better off in a, in a United Ireland. Although better off is not the only thing people take into account. Absolutely it not. And it's identity. economic reasons, but it's really tussling. They're tussling with the issue of identity politics and that. But I just think that a border poll, I think unification will actually happen someday, but it's got to happen in a much slower, much more organic, much more bottom-up process because I think the people are not going to move as the politicians move. Mary Lou, I know can, you wanted to come in on the Seamus yeah. Mallon point. Yeah, can I, I really have to challenge you on that point. And I challenge Seamus on that point because, you see... Um, in any democratic process. So, for example, we've had big referendums in this jurisdiction on repeal and marriage equality. Would anybody have suggested in that scenario, well, a 50% uh, plus one isn't enough? There would have been an outrage. And absolutely, I'm looking at Alva Smith down there. She wouldn't have bought that argument, and neither would the rest of us. Um, so I think a distinction has to be made because we are absolutely ad idem. We are in absolute agreement on the need for collaboration, for discussion. And let me tell you, when those discussions happen, I can guarantee you that you find more in common than of difference on so many different day-to-day -day bread and butter uh, issues and social justice issues. I guarantee you that. But you cannot say 
embrace the Good Friday Agreement except for the provision that says that partition can be end, ended by popular vote in accordance with the standard democratic norm. I would suggest that that is a really dangerous thing to do because what it says to people who, who got caught in, in the northern state, who never wanted to be marooned in the way that they found themselves, it says to them, well, actually, you don't even have a clear, reasonable, rational, democratic pathway out of this. And I, 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 think, it's, I think that would be absolutely unconscionable. But the forum should happen, and the discussions have to happen. And I, just to say, Hugh, when, I, when I've raised this issue, and we in Sinn Féin have raised this issue, we've been dismissed, I mean, but even by sections of the media, even, dare I say it, by some of the more enlightened souls in the Irish Times. Surely not. And I thought, sadly, I'm, I'm very, very sad to report this reality. But I, I think people need to open their eyes and you need to, to objectively assess what's going on. And can I finally say this? This is not about whether you're Catholic or Protestant or a dissenter. I mean, Wolf Tone, famously the father of Irish republicanism, set as the mission to chart an independent Irish way forward in which you could be any of those or none of those. And the Good Friday Agreement settled the issue of Irish or British or both. That's done. That matter is resolved. You are Irish, British, neither, both, and you are accommodated on this island. And that would not change. That would not change uh, in circumstances in which the border was removed. Sophie, there are, there are two points here which it seems to me are connected. One is the question of the, the 50% plus one. And we do know, we have examples close to home, including recently across the water, that very divisive binary choices in referendums, particularly if you haven't had a process in advance where people have a chance to ventilate and explore the real issues that arise out of making a decision of that sort, we, we, we see how badly wrong that can go. Uh, we've, on the converse, we've seen some success here with notions of citizens' assemblies and the ability to trash out ideas in some detail before you decide to put them to the people. But I suppose the question, my question to you would be that Mary Lou's suggestion of a forum would lose, in my mind, an awful lot of value unless it had the full participation of the community from whom you come. And how likely is it that we might see that? <clears throat> Uh, yeah, so I agree with the idea of deliberative fora. I think one of the things the Irish state does really well is to allow the Irish people to alter the constitution. Um, and the citizens' assemblies were successful precisely because they didn't round people up on a particular day and ask them all of a sudden what they thought about something really complicated. They gave them the material and the input and the expertise and the time to reflect um, to kind of reach a considered position. And most, most people, if you kind of give them that time um, and that knowledge and that support, um, will make good decisions. Like, that's the whole point of a deliber deliberative democracy as opposed to um, a representative democracy. So, um, and it would also address the growing kind of feeling of anti-establishment politics, which can either go a good way and result in, like, left-wing activism, or can go a bad way and end up in right-wing populism. So it would address that. It would give people a sense that they have a kind of say and shape on what's going on. Um, would unionists and loyalists participate? Um, probably a lot of them would. Like from my experience doing my uh, PhD and my time in the PUP, there is a little bit of a feeling that um, like Sinn Féin are a very well oiled political machine. They have some very well honed arguments. It's quite tricky to go into a room with them and win, like if you're trying to win. 
Um, so, so there may be some people that are reluctant to do that in case they kind of get steamrolled into a particular um, outcome. So on that basis, I think that for the border poll issue, like we should have a bit more of a like a creative constitutional menu instead of like, do you want some dinner or do you not want some dinner? Mm-hmm. Right. So you could say like we could have something like non-territorial autonomy, which has been used um, in Estonia um, in some of the former um, Russian parts of Central and Eastern Europe. Um, you could have joint authority. You could have like city states. You could do interesting democratic experiments and find out like how people would like to govern themselves. Um, and that in itself would craft a different way of living. So if you look at the success of social movements, why do people enjoy social movements? It's not because they reach an end goal. We could have had repeal by just changing the law. It's because participating in those things um, changes you as a person. Um, it gives you kind of a more, more of a stake in the society you're living in. It gives you a sense of buy-in to the result, right? So I think instead of having a, would you like to be in the UK or would you like to be in United Ireland? We should have like a more, as I said, a creative constitutional menu and give everybody the chance from the very outset to design what's going to happen instead of bringing them in at a kind of final stage. What do you think the reaction would be of people in your community if a a border poll were called, it won by, let's say for the sake of argument, 51% to 49% and it was agreed that Northern Ireland was going to become part of a united Ireland? What do you think their reaction would be? I was going to say it would be difficult for unionists to argue because I think it was um, there was an academic at Queen's produced a research that showed it was like 85% unionists voted for Brexit right Mm. and so the pro-Brexit argument is like you lost suck it up however people can hold conflicting ideas in their heads at the same time so they may say you lost suck it up but we lost and it was fixed yeah so um, so I think I think 50% plus one is fine but it's how it's done and it's also here's the thing a lot of unionists and loyalists are very very concerned about who would govern a united ireland and how they would be treated precisely because there are so many unresolved issues in northern ireland yeah right so not just about um the armed forces not just about what flags fly where but also about when is it legitimate to use violence to advance your political goals if you do that, are you willing to obey the rules of international humanitarian law? Will you target civilians? What if something else... Uh, this is in the event of a, a, an outbreak of conflict again. Yeah, but also looking backwards, there has been no public discussion on the use of violence to achieve political ends in Northern Ireland. So I think people feel a little bit unsettled for that very reason. So is it morally legitimate to do that? Um, and under what conditions would you do that? And would you target civilians? Then there's the whole heap of the identity stuff. And then there's economic stuff. I know the Irish state are sort of working on an, on a system of universal health care, but they keep finding out it's too expensive. But maybe if they collected their taxes from big corporations, then they could pay it. So there's lots of different things that, like, need to be ironed out, you know, before you could ask people to join Diller Quinties. Simon? I think that um, I agree with both some of both points that, um, that Sophie and Mary Lou make. Um, I think the process of um, figuring out what question you ask is a big one, actually. Uh, Is it a a straight, do you want a united Ireland, or do you not? And I think a better way to approach the question, or actually coming up with a question, is to have the forum that Mary Lou was talking about, and create a discussion around, well, what actually is a united Ireland, before we ask, do you want it or not? 
Um, also, I think some of the points that Sophie makes is, are really valid because if you look at it, like how are you actually going to handle people who identify as British and Unionist in a United Ireland? Do you have to go so far as to consider a confederal United Ireland? Do you need a parliament in both Belfast and Dublin to manage that? Do we need to have a discussion around that? I don't know. That's the kind of things you need to discuss. And in many ways, if you could actually remove all of Brexit from that discussion and say, Brexit is, it, we know how toxic it is. Uh, can we put that aside and let's try and figure all that out? Let's have this discussion that we need to have, this very tricky discussion, given all the unresolved issues from the past that haven't been worked out. But and that might a- be achievable because in one way or another, Brexit is probably going to be over and settled, you know, maybe in a disastrous way, but settled in some form of a way within the next couple of years. Well, the tricky thing is if there's no deal Brexit, it's going to hasten the question of whether we actually need to have at least an economic United Ireland, which in many respects we have already, because uh, both Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland currently are in the European Union, uh, European single market. So, but I, I thought the point that Mary Lou made about duplication is an interesting one as well, because we are actually a, a single island unit in terms of healthcare, in terms of lots of issues, you know, like people in Donegal getting treated in Altnagalvan Hospital in Derry, and people in Dundalk or Louth getting treated in Daisy Hill and Newry. So, it would be interesting to have all these discussions saying, well, let's not worry about Brexit because that's going to force us to have a very difficult conversation much more quickly than we had hoped for. So I think we need to tease out all of those issues before we start putting a question to the people and need to remove the prospect of a very tense border poll being put to the people. Also, like you've seen what Brexit's done at a 52-48 result in the UK. It's effectively, it has the potential to break up the United Kingdom. I, I think a question put to people now without the kind of discussion actually that Mary Lou is talking about could be very, very divisive and very dangerous on this island. Well, indeed, and underlying that, Mary Lou, I mean, we haven't touched upon the fact that part of the context of this discussion is that we are, we are still only barely a generation away from a terrible, awful conflict in which many thousands of people died. And there is an underlying fear that some of those atavistic impulses are still there, and indeed we've seen them manifest in various ways in, in recent months, and that a process of this sort could awaken, I suppose, sleeping monsters. Yes, uh, and, and bear in mind when this state was formed, we had been through the Tan War, the Civil War, horrific things had happened, and bear in mind there was never a process a truth recovery or reconciliation here. And bear in mind, that's why two big conservative blocs, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, or AKA Tweedledum and Tweedledee, have dominated politics for here for so long. And what makes this generation different in terms of how we seek to broker peace and unity, but peace in its own terms, is that there has been a recognition that you actually have to get down into very, very painful and difficult issues of loss and conflict and blame and culpability and, and, and. And remember this, because and maybe some of our, your audience may or may not know this, Republicans and Unionists managed to agree the mechanisms to do that. It's in an agreement called the Stormont House Agreement. We actually managed to, to agree amongst ourselves, this is the shape, this is what the, the architecture should look like. And then the British state came in with the, with the big size 10 or whatever and said, no, you're not doing that because of uh, security concerns. 
that they had. What's the term they used? It'll come back to me again. So I, I think we need to be careful while recognising the scale of that challenge because all of this is within living memory and people are still hurting. It's not the past, it's the present. We need to be very, very mindful of that. But it should not be used as a pretext to stifle change. I want to tell you an interesting just anecdote to show how things have changed. I was out in a by-election in uh, West Tyrone. That's what, about a year ago, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was prior to uh, repeal. So we're out banging the doors and all the Sinn Feiners and, God, we spot uh, a group of unionist candidates or canvassers. Uh, They weren't from the DUP, but I won't identify which party. So we're chatting with them. How are you getting on? Great. Say goodbye and, and off we walk. And uh, I remember saying to one of our, our canvassers, what was significant about that? And they're kind of looking at me. The young unionist canvassers were wearing their repeal jumpers. Even though this was a constitutional question, if you want to be absolutely dogmatic about in a foreign jurisdiction, that was an all of Ireland conversation about women and about our place in society. And there was an all of Ireland consensus that we long, 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 uh, after a long delay, that we needed to move on. So there are big sensitive issues for sure. And we shouldn't stupidly or clumsily uh, ignite things that are painful or dangerous. Of course, we have a duty of care. But please remember this. There are massive, massive opportunities Massive opportunities. And I've met young unionist people who would say to me, I'm a unionist. You know, I I don't dig the whole Sinn Féin thing and I'm not, that's fine. But we are with you on this issue, this issue, this issue and that issue. And to be honest with you, Brexit or no Brexit, if we park the bus for a moment, I have a sense within broad progressive society in the North that there are certain things that are being insisted on by the establishment, which is unionist, that people won't wear anymore. And they're not prepared to have live in a state where you tie up the swings on a Sunday. People want a life that's better than that. And in the South, Hugh, final word, a lot of this thing of be careful, don't look to what we can achieve, measure your ambition, this is dangerous. Let's just say it out loud. That's from a politi- political establishment that many of whom are very happy with the status quo. Very, very happy with the status quo and how things are. Uh, I'm not. And for me, the the issue of Irish unity isn't just about removing the border, although it is about that. It's about a whole new social and economic model. And I believe that we can do that. I think we progressives should grab that with both hands and we should run with it. Sophie, do you do you recognize the picture of elements of your community, which 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 Mary Lou is describing there? Because it strikes me listening to to you talk here, listen to Mary Lou talk, it seems to me that you have far more common ground on many issues than you would have with the Sammy Wilsons or Edwin Pootses of this world, who in theory are, are on, the, on the same side of the camp. But, but how does that work? And do you recognise, is there, is there a generational change, for example? Um, yeah, that was one of the kind of, like, quirky, difficult, like, ultimately, like, depressing features of the Progressive Unionist Party. So... The PUP shared a lot of policies with both the Greens and with Sinn Féin. So, for example, like the PUP were the first pro-choice unionist party. They were the first party to pass a motion on supporting marriage equality. They had motions like prohibiting uh, sex trafficking. They had motions on gender recognition, all those sorts of things. So their kind of argument was like, look, you can support the union, 
but you can also have a class analysis of the conflict where you understand that the dominant unionist establishment kind of manipulated working class men for the most part into going to jail for them. And the arguments they, make, they were making weren't quite correct. So on the one hand, yes, you can support the union, but you can recognize kind of historical manipulation. You can recognize common class interests, um, and you can recognize the need um, for a progressive, tolerant society, which, by the way, was at least until the past few years a very British thing, right? Mm. So you can be a trade unionist, um, you can support the right to peaceful protest, um, you can want to live in a kind of a cordial union of nations, right? Multicultural, multi-ethnic union of nations. Um, so that, that all makes complete sense to me. Um, the fact that um, the DEP are the dominant electoral force is kind of irritating for a lot of unionists because they don't see themselves in that party. They happen to have become the dominant electoral force partly because of St Andrews, like the Good Friday Agreement. The St Andrews Agreement. Yeah, St yes. Andrews, yeah, 2007. So the Good Friday Agreement was there to let the small parties in. She had the Women's Coalition, the PUP, even had the UDP, who were the UDA's kind of political voice. Um, you had 108 seats at Stormont precisely to include the smaller parties, and that was reduced down to, to 90 um, a couple of years ago. Um, but then when we had St Andrews, the British government, for whatever reason, well, they wanted to get the, the sort of administration back up and running, but they concentrated power. They kind of took it away from the five down to the two, so then when we've been having the kind of rounds of talks recently, I've heard complaints from, you know, Alliance, SDLP, UUP, that they don't really have a say, as much of a say as they would like, in getting Stormont back up and running. Because what the British government did in 2007 was they kind of concentrated it down to those to two. To those two parties, yeah. yeah. And the DUP have built their political throne on not buying to Sinn Féin, whatever that means, right? So if that's how you maintain your political capital, then you can't back down, like you're in a corner. So you wait in the corner until you're in the corner of United Ireland. And you say, well, we said no to it, but it happened anyway. Because they don't want to sit down and talk to people the way that the UUP did, the UDP did, the PUP did, the Women's Coalition did. How much of this do you think is baked into the Good Friday Agreement itself, in that the Good Friday Agreement obviously achieved great things, it achieved the end of violence, uh, brought everybody to the table, or pretty much everybody to the table, but it did institutionalise this thing in which parties had to identify themselves as either green or orange, either British or Irish, or either nationalist or unionist. And I have to say, speaking personally myself, I wouldn't like to have to label myself in that binary fashion if I were living in Northern Ireland. And it does have exactly the sort of the negative impact it's had in that people retreat to their corrals and don't come out, doesn't it? Yeah, so it's like, um, it's called like ethnic tribune politics. So if you have like two camps and you're within one camp, what you have to do is get to the top of the pile and then you got to look at the other camp and think, right, who's at the top of the pile there? We need somebody able to argue with them. So that's the DEP's argument. They'll say, elect us and we will make sure that Sinn Féin don't get this, this and this. Whereas then they'll say, oh, the UUP are soft. Look, Mike Nesbitt said, vote SDLP. He's going to march us into United Ireland. Now, they never really describe what a United Ireland will look like. It's just taken for granted that it's a bad thing. Um, so they don't even grant their voters the dignity of kind of a, a thorough explanation. Um, the binary thing is really problematic. And when Claire Bailey of the Greens was elected um, as an MLA twice, somehow through like incredibly hard work, Whenever they said, are you a unionist uh, or a nationalist, she said, I'm a feminist. And they said, well, that's not an option. Mm. And that's really life in Northern Ireland. That's not an option. 
and that's, we'll that's the, 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 that's the trouble with this green-orange yeah. divide. I love the fact, by the way, we're having a panel discussion with the unionists and the nationalists and a marching band goes by. Yeah, <laughs> I, I should just say it wasn't a loyal order. It was a yes. ragged scarecrow on stilts. Uh, <laughs> a, a political marching band. Um, no, the but, kind of marching bands we like. Yeah, yeah. they're... they're um, yeah, it's like, you know, confused. Are they, are they nationalists? Are they unionists? Let's go find out. Uh, but that's, that's interesting, like the option, you know, the green-orange option. And I came across some of the people that uh, Mary Lou's come across as well and some of the reporting I did post-Brexit or within the Bre- uh, Brexit discourse where you had liberal unionists who actually, their traditional opposition to Republic being in uh, United Ireland was that, you know, home rule is Rome rule. Yep. Nobody could argue now that home rule would be Rome rule given the very progressive changes that have taken place in the Republic of Ireland. And that's actually very attractive for a lot of unionists. So when you go and have that discussion with them and say, yeah, there's this Brexit thing, which do you want to be? Do you want to be British, Irish? Where do you want to be? Which, which country do you want to be in? And they say, well, actually, I really like some of the stuff you've been doing down in the Republic. It adds a new comple- uh, complexity to it, but it creates that kind of, uh, it's not actually an A, B option which is, again, the fear that I'd have with a border poll is it's a binary thing. It's a binary choice. And there needs to be that discussion to that. Can I, I don't want to um, scaremonger, but is there not a possibility that in a 50 plus one thing, there's, there's an eruption of violence, as we've seen in a few times over the last century, and that people try and retreat to armed ghettos in some form or another? Well, I don't know that you could say that and that say that that's not scaremongering. I mean, I think that okay, is... Okay, you don't think there's any possibility I, of that I, happening I, whatsoever? I think, I think we have a solid piece, but we need to work on it. And the minute that we take it for granted, of course there is a danger. Of course. But, but that has been the case even when the institutions were up and running and when things uh, were going along fine and dandy. Because we are, we are dealing with a society and an island that has been very fractured I just want to come back to the designation thing, orange or green, and there's actually three designations. So it's, it's either unionist, nationalist, or other. Um, and for us, I mean, I'm a Dubliner, you look at that and you kind of say, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but what you're, what you're failing to calculate is that the north of Ireland was a single-party state for generations. It was unionist run and dominated, and the other was entirely excluded from work, from voting, from all of these things happen. So the designation may be crude, but it is the formula that was agreed to ensure that you have power sharing, that you don't have single party rule again. And it's, I would say, to, the issue here is that we are coming of age now 21 years later and people are asking and saying, well, is this the way it's going to be forever? And of course, it's not the way it should be forever. But in the here and now, it's actually very, very important that unionism, that nationalism, that other has their place and that we don't get back to that single party system. The, the, the assembly and executive in the north isn't like the doll for all of its flaws here, which it, it is a, a unique arrangement to reflect the fact that you had generations of single party rule and of conflict. Sophie, you wanted to come in on that. Yeah, so... Um I wanted to say something about the uh, outbreak of violence, but just in, in response to that, um, yes, of course, we had to move from like unionist domination and the like suffocation of an Irish identity. We had to move past that to like a just society. I completely agree. Um, but I think the problem with what we've done is like you can compare it to like redistributing wealth. So you can either have like a sort of 
a redistributive capitalist system where like the top 10% give like a tiny portion of their income and that goes down to the bottom so you're redistributing but the means of generating that wealth and the means of holding power remain the same or you could have a transformative system you could have like a social system and you can do the same politically so instead of just kind of doling out bits of power you could have something more transformative which is something that you know could be talked about in these forums um, on the thing about um, the outbreak of violence the interesting like feature of the past 10 years is there are uh, maybe 11, 12 armed Republican groups in Belfast. For the most part, what they do is mete out punishment violence on young men for various like uh, social infractions. Um, they attempt harm against the security forces. Um, they occasionally uh, are successful and they do kill people. But loyalist paramilitaries, interestingly, have not responded. So if you talk to the alleged leadership of the UVF, they will say, we have managed our people, there is no dissident loyalism. We've managed that uh, sort of uh, peace process deal that we made, like they haven't engaged in violence against armed Republican groups, and that's largely true. So what loyalist paramilitaries do, they don't do paramilitary shootings as much, they do paramilitary beatings. So the stats kind of, you can see, they do beatings, they do shootings. Um, and obviously, loyalists don't engage in the same armed action against security forces as the Republican groups um, do. But the other point I'd make is we probably won't have another version of the Troubles simply because MI5 have infiltrated both sets so thoroughly that they could like turn it off like that, right? So the argument that's commonly made is uh, Roe House, which is the Republican wing of McGabry, which is where the political prisoners are housed, um, if you're in Roe House, it means you haven't turned as an informer, and if you get out, you have turned as an informer. Now, that's like a little bit simplistic, but that's the strategy of the security right. forces and managing the army. I don't know if I'm being too paranoid here, but that means that MI5 can turn it on if they can turn it off as well, is the, is the other side of that. I, I want to, we've, we've talked almost exclusively about what people think about this issue in Northern Ireland. And Mary Lou mentioned earlier that uh, you know 67% of people in a recent poll were in favour of United Ireland in the, in, the, in the Republic of Ireland at the moment. Simon, I think that figure is a bit soft politically. I think if it was put to the test, it might come down somewhat. People have always said, oh, if they see what the bill is going to be, Northern Ireland's an economic basket case, it'd be like West Germany taking on East Germany, except multiplied by 10. It would drag us all down and people would be negative about that. What, what, what do you think of that? Do you think that 67% would manifest, let's say, if there's a simultaneous republic, a simultaneous referendum in the republic? I think it's probably on the high side. Um, I think I think Mary Lee's right. I think there's a level of um, there's a level of happiness with the way things are down here, with the status quo. I think uh, you know Dublin is only two hours from Belfast, but I think it's much further away for a lot of people in the Republic. Um, I think there's a level of apathy as well towards the issues in Northern Ireland. Um, I think again it comes back to I think it would be interesting to have discussions. You know, we've seen the success of the Citizens Assembly on other issues. Uh, it would be interesting to see that discussion and where the figures would come out, uh, whether it would be up at 67% in a forum like that. Um, and I think it is important to have four like that and to go back to the point that we've both agreed on is that there are four there. I mean, there's actually a fora, forum up in Northern Ireland, the Stormont Assembly, 
which I'd like to hear Mary Lou's view on it because her party's decided not to participate in that currently. That to me would be an interesting place to have a discussion around whether Brexit needs to actually lead to a discussion in Northern Ireland, in Belfast, in Stormont about the issue of unification and what would come from that. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think it would probably be too high. Uh, it, would be, it, would be on, it wouldn't be as high as that if it came to it. What do you think, what do you think Mary Lou? Well, on the issue of the figures, I, I think it's, it's, it's very, very significant that there is that level of public sentiment that sees Irish unity as a viable and a desirable thing in a context in which we haven't set out what does the health service look like, you know, what does education look like, what do public services look like uh, generally. And I think support would only grow when those things are, are debated and understood. You see this thing of the North being a basket case and being a burden. Uh, it, it's been cut off in a, in a most artificial way. So, of course, it doesn't have a normal economy and a thrive, the kind of thriving economy it could have. But I tell you what, the North is full of talent, ingenuity. And let me tell you, it's, it's potentially a big win-win for the entire island to build an economy of scale, uh, on a, a radically different uh, model than what we have north to south now. And I think it can bring real prosperity. I think it can bring social justice. I think all of these things uh, are, are intertwined. Just so as we're, we're clear, we haven't decided not to be in the Assembly. I mean, we have, uh, we have had a, a history of 10 years of, of joint governance at the time between Martin McGuinness and, and uh, the late Ian Paisley. We have run into a roadblock. The Assembly came down on the basis of a scandal around corruption. Uh, that didn't play well. When the Assembly came down, public confidence in it was rock bottom. Uh, and there had to be a political response. And there's a real problem now in terms of getting government back up. Because we don't have a, a partner in unionism in the form of the DUP that is willing to do the lift with us. By the way, February 12 months ago, I thought we had that accommodation. I, we, had, we had worked very hard. We had done great work. I thought we were there. The DUP didn't agree. And here we are. But the current thing is unsustainable and intolerable. I mean, I agree with you on that. But please don't depict us as people who, who won't go into the Assembly. We're elected by the communities who need good government. And no one's more acutely aware of that than me, I can assure you. I think it's tricky, though, where on one hand you say it's important to have discussions around a very difficult issue like reunification of Ireland and yet not try and find a way to make that assembly work again. Well, can I just tell you, as uh, they're probably at it today, we've spent the whole week, we've spent the whole week engaged in discussions. We have, we have spent hundreds of hours, thousands of hours on the issues concerned, so it's not complacency or indifferent So it's on not Sinn Féin's fault? No, it, it, does it, matter? It's not, it doesn't matter fault or blame. That's not going to get us anywhere. The issues are that Northern society and Northern citizens have said very, very clearly that they want a system of government that's real power sharing, that offers progress, that offers inclusion and identity rights for everybody. In, in other words, a society in which there's room for everyone. And unfortunately, and this is well documented, we've had blockage after blockage. I want us to overcome those. I want us to be creative in how we overcome them. And I thought we were there, uh, as I said uh, in a previous episode, and we will get there. I mean, I'm very determined that we will. 
uh, but we can't do it on our own. That's my point. We need a partner in unionism to make that lift. Don't the difficulties that Mary Lou is talking about there exemplify how difficult it would be to have a meaningful conversation about the, the far thornier issue of Irish unity? I think it's difficult enough to get a local assembly up in, in, uh, in Belfast. Yes, yes and no. Like Yes, because like Northern Ireland's not united. So Northern Ireland, some people's eyes, is like a solid, safe haven, which, you know, to be truthful, was artificially carved out of Ireland for a certain like group of people. That's a pretty hopeless vista, though, isn't it? I mean, of... I mean, traditionally when you know when people share government together they may it may end in tears and you know the coalitions change or whatever but in a way it's the modern version of the permanent government which Mary Lou was talking about earlier the unionist built-in majority this built-in majority of the two of the two parties Sinn Féin and the DUP in a way can be equally toxic particularly when it's not even delivering a government yeah absolutely and that's why it's been so difficult for either of the like call them like moderate nationalist or moderate unionist parties if you want to the UUP have no idea what to do, right? So how can they sell themselves? So if they want to be um, like a diet DUP, nobody wants them because you'll just take the DUP who have more numbers, who are going to argue more fiercely, who'll say no more times. If you are a liberal unionist, as we've seen from the numbers, people are putting their faith in Naomi Long because she's very clear on Brexit. She's very good at arguing. Like there's no bullshit about her. So Alliance are sweeping up the liberal unionist vote. So are some of the um, Green Party candidates. Mm. Um, so those two parties are going to stay at the top. And to be fair, uh, Sinn Féin put that work in in the 80s through crafting a kind of resistance movement in communities um, as a response to what was going on in Northern Ireland. Um, so that's, that's why I think they have that kind of support. I should say we're getting attacked by some ferocious-looking insects yeah. up here, which is probably a sign that we should we should wrap it up. I just want to, just remains for me to thank uh, Sophie, Mary Lou, and Simon for joining us. Thanks for coming along. This has been the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. Tune in to us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. We'll talk to you again soon. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks again to Mary Lou, to Sophie and to Simon. Thanks also to Body and Soul for inviting us along. Our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. Your views are most welcome. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.